0: Good morning, Disciples Church. My name is Dan Green, and it's my privilege to read the scripture for today. 1 Peter 3 8 verses or through 17. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord.
1: You may be seated. Thanks, Dan, for reading that for us. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you. It's good to be with you today. My name is Jonathan Moser, and I have the privilege and the honor of getting to open up the Word of God with you this morning. So if you're not already there in your Bibles, please take the time to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. As a kid who grew up in church, I remember hearing one particular story about an elderly woman in a church. I assume this story is proverbial, but I remember hearing this story about this elderly woman in a church who was known for her positivity. She was just one of those people. You couldn't shake her. You couldn't throw her off. She was the kind of woman who was never going to engage in gossip. She was the kind of woman who was never going to talk poorly about, any, about anybody else in the church. Uh, even the most difficult people around her could not draw a rise out of her. And so some of her friends had just marveled at her consistency. And so they came up with kind of this joking scheme of a way that they were going to catch her. And they approached her one Sunday and they said, Betsy, Uh, It seems like you can never find anything bad to say about anybody, so what do you think about the devil?" And her response after a momentary pause was, well, I'll give him this, he's persistent. Now, that's a silly story, but it illustrates something true. Uh, The posture of our heart informs our actions. Our perspective shapes our behavior, and as we come to this portion of this book, Peter is closing out his discussion of the practical way in which Christians are to live out their faith in front of an unbelieving world, and Peter has been working his way inward, kind of in a granular fashion, moving through the different elements and aspects of the Christian life and addressing in particular how it is that we ought to interact. He started, if you remember a few weeks back, with the idea of citizenship. What does it look like to live as a citizen of a country in the world. And then he kind of moved his way in and we addressed that idea of employment. What does it look like to be an employee? How do you interact with bosses? How do you interact with those who have authority over you in your own life? And then last week in a very real and incredibly practical way, talked about how it plays itself out within the context of marriage as husbands and as wives, what's our relationship to each other, what's our responsibility to one another, how we interact with one another, and as we've kind of moved granularly in each week, Peter now is going to zoom back out and he's going to address everybody regardless of your phase of life, regardless of where you find yourself, regardless of the difficulty of the season. And this word that he's going to give you today is particularly true if you find yourself in a season of suffering. This whole book is written to those who are suffering. And for that reason, it's good for us to spend time in it, because if you're not suffering, you will. It is the nature of this world. It's the nature of living in a broken and fallen world. and the way that we suffer may play out in all kinds of different ways, depending on, uh, on what happens in our lives. It may be suffering of a very personal nature. It may be a diagnosis. It may be family difficulties or relational difficulties. It may be, like these Christians face, persecution or suffering explicitly for the faith that we hold. But the hope that we have is what we find in this chapter, that there is a very real and living hope that belongs exclusively to those who know Jesus Christ. And so what Peter says this morning, he has to say to everybody, it is not dependent on your marital status, it's not dependent on your governmental status, it's not dependent on your occupational status, it is for you in a very real and profound and practical way. And so I want you to look with me, if you would, beginning in verse 8, look at what Peter says. Finally, and he's just closing out this particular section, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So for the closing thought in this section, Peter says, I want you, Christian, to endure suffering but not just merely to endure it. I want you to endure it in a way that leads to your ultimate blessing. And that idea certainly is not unique to Peter. He's addressing here the whole idea of don't don't revile when somebody reviles you. Don't respond in kind when you are mistreated. That idea is all throughout the New Testament. We see it come from the mouth of Jesus in Luke chapter 6 when he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you pray for those who abuse you. Paul echoes the same idea in Romans chapter 12, and in fact uses almost identical language. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And since these themes are repeated so often throughout the New Testament, since we could find a dozen different examples where this same instruction is given to us, it may not occur to us just how revolutionary and, listen, impossible this is to do. I mean, Jesus and Paul and Peter and the Psalmists and all throughout Scripture were given this very same instruction, but do you realize that in and of your own strength and in and of your own power, this is an impossible command? There is no way to obey it outside of a supernatural intervention in your life, a transformation of your heart that does not belong to you or your own ability to transform yourself or or choose the right things or live the right way. I mean, how in the world do you bless those who curse you? And as if it's not enough, notice what he says in verse 8. Because Peter here is not just telling you how you ought to act toward other people. He actually tells you how you ought to feel. How in the world do we obey commands to feel? Because that gets at the very root of who we are. I mean, that's a lot harder. This is talking about a whole reorientation of the heart. I mean, we can all paste a smile on our face in the middle of an uncomfortable conversation. That's not particularly difficult. We can all, we can all give a polite nod towards people that maybe we actually can't stand in our heart. People do that every day. Not me, but other people, right? But Peter's going to say, that's not enough for you, and I'm not just after this external this external conforming to a particular pattern of behavior. What I'm after is your heart. And if you've ever tried to white-knuckle your way through a difficult interaction, you can attest that this isn't enough because you can feel riling up within your heart and your soul a distaste and a displeasure for other people. Think for just a moment about the people in your life who drive you batty. I mean, who is it that just drives you nuts? The people that know how to push your buttons... They know the topic to bring up. They know the thing to say. They know the passive-aggressive comment to make to just draw the very worst out of you. Think about the people, maybe even more substantially, who've mistreated you. People who've abused you. People who've taken advantage of you. People who've spoken out against you. I mean, you might be able to purse your lips and bite your tongue, but do you actually have a heart of gentleness toward them? We actually have a genuine desire of the soul to bless them. See, that's something else, entirely. But the instruction itself here is incredibly consistent with what we find throughout Scripture, which is this: that what God is most after is your heart. God God demonstrates this for this uh, demonstrates this for us all the time. In Isaiah chapter 1, he speaks to the children of Israel and he says, I'm sick of your sacrifices and I'm sick of you coming to the temple and your religious observances and your offerings and the praise of your lips. Well, why would he say that? God himself had instructed the people to participate in those things. He had given them instruction as to the particular outplay of their religious observances and the sacrifices and all those kinds of things. So why in Isaiah chapter one does he say, the scent from these offerings that that you're sacrificing to me, they're a stench in my nostrils. Well, the reason he said that is because while he had their sacrifices, he didn't have their hearts. What he was after was them. Not the external offerings that they could give him. That's what Acts chapter 17 says when it says that, that God is not served by human hands. See, God doesn't need the sacrifice. What he's after is the heart behind the sacrifice. It's the same thing Paul in Romans chapter 2 says when he says, Listen, there's a whole bunch of people who claim the mantle who claim the mantle of God's name and they participate in religious circumcision and observance of the law, but their hearts are the very same as those who don't know Jesus at all. And what Peter is indicating in this text is that the only way you're going to be able to respond to harsh words and to unfair accusations and even to cruel treatment with blessing is if your heart is first reoriented to that of God. And he gives us here the evidences of that reorientation. Look what he says first. He says, unity of mind. As believers, we are to be in harmony with one another. We are to have the same goals, a common attitude, a shared mindset is, the, is another way you can interpret that idea. Unity of mind, a shared mindset, a common perspective. Now, right off the bat, we have all kinds of trouble with that. Because everything in this world around us is constructed in such a way to create in us a sectarianism we 're drawn to it naturally, the world around us influences to that. We naturally align ourselves with others based on our, our politics, our interests, our hobbies, our personalities, our occupations and a, and a hundred other things. We are looking for people that look like us, act like us, think like us, behave like us we want. We want that sense of affirmation. We want that sense of belonging. And understand that inherently that desire for community, that, in, that desire for belonging, that desire for affirmation is not inherently a bad thing, but our tendency is just to try to find it in other people. And in order to do that, we not only have to create sex among ourselves, but we also have to define who the other is. And what Peter's instruction here is saying is that does not exist exclusively outside of the church. It happens within it as well. He's calling us here to a unity of heart. And by the way, not just the heart of Disciples Church and not just the people in this room, but brothers and sisters across denominations and across national borders all around the world with distinctions and differences that are important, yes, but with the commonality of understanding where our faith and our hope lies in Jesus Christ alone. We're very good at looking at people and assessing them, assessing our commonalities and cloistering ourselves off from others based on those differences. And the time in which we live in particular, I think we feel this temptation even more. Those differences are exacerbated because everything around us can be so personalized. You can define your musical tastes into a very, very narrow portion, a very narrow slice of music. You can be a massive fan of a band that nobody else around you has ever even heard of. That wasn't necessarily the case 70 years ago. We can cater to ourselves with the particular news that we digest. We can cater to ourselves with the particular places in which we live. We can cater to ourselves in a hundred different ways. And listen, again, the point of all that is is just to say this. We're not to let that happen within the context of brothers and sisters in the church. It's hard instruction. And Peter started in chapter 1 with the declaration that in Christ we've been made a new people. We've been given a new nation. In other words, we have been given a whole new culture, a common culture. One that belongs to everybody who's been washed by the blood of Jesus. One that's shared by everybody who's been regenerated by the Spirit. And the tenets of that new culture supersede every other distinction we have. They don't erase those distinctions, but they supersede them. And this call to unity of mind is a a sort of heading for everything else that Peter is about to say. In other words, he's now going to define how we are to be unified. How do we have a common attitude? How do we actually demonstrate this among believers within the context of the church? And here's where I'm going to start. It's not where Peter starts, but I'm going to start here. He says, brotherly love. Now, again, a phrase that is so common within Christianity, but he's speaking here to the idea of familial affection. So here's how Karen Jobs, one commentator, wrote it. She said, the emphasis on brotherly love often falls on love rather than on brother, which sometimes leads to a misunderstanding that affection is more important than the result to do right by others with whom we are substantially related by faith in Christ. And that is a deep and profound truth of what brotherly love actually is, that the emphasis is not just on the affection, the feeling, the emoting of love, but it's actually on the understanding of the bond by which we are tied to other believers. And think about it within the context of your own family. And I realize that every family is different, it plays out differently, it looks differently, but just understand it this way. Think of the way that you might love those to whom you're related. The sacrifices that you might be willing to make for a parent or a brother or a sister are just uniquely different for most people than what you would be willing to extend someone who's not blood family or certainly someone that you don't know at all. But realizing that the application might be different, do you have a heart for those with whom you share a blood bond in Christ? So I was speaking to my father-in-law last evening. Um, he was kind of updating me on what was going on in his life over the last few weeks. And about three or four weeks ago, he had an opportunity to go to the Holy Land. He went to Israel and did a tour. He went with a, a church group from... Um, from, from um, Uh, Moody uh, Bible College that had kind of led this group, and so he's there with a whole group of Christians, and while they're out visiting the garden tomb, he gets a phone call that his aunt, uh, who is the last living relative of that particular generation in his family, that his aunt is on her deathbed. And So my father-in-law was there with his brother, and so he went over to the tour guide and said, hey, we've got to step away for a minute. We've got to take this call. We, we need to be alone for a little a, a, a minute, and so they stepped off. They went off by themselves. They sat down on the bench, and, and here my father-in-law and his brother began to pray for their elderly aunt who was on her deathbed and just hoping that, that she'd be able to hold out long enough to maybe have one more conversation or to see them, and And as they're sitting there and praying together, they begin to cry. And it comes to the point where they just can't get words out anymore. This woman is just a dear person in their life, means the world to them. And and so they're praying now silently because they can't get the words out. And all of a sudden, they feel hands on their shoulders and their backs. And they expected that a group of people from their tour group had come over and maybe begun to pray for them. But then they heard somebody begin to speak and pray. And it was a voice they didn't recognize who said... Father, we don't exactly know what's going on in this life, but it sounds like there's a woman named Doris who's just incredibly dear to these two men. And so we just ask you to intervene in whatever way it is that you would intervene. And when they looked up, they were greeted, not by friends from among the tour group, by a group of Christians from South Africa who happened to be walking through, had seen them praying, had heard their cries, and went over to be with them. See, in that moment, in many ways, My father-in-law had more in common with a group of strangers from South Africa, believers in the middle of Israel, than he might have had with countrymen who did not know Jesus. I wonder if that sort of love and affection defines our interaction with brothers. Do we have that sort of brotherly love? And look, as he continues to explain how it plays out, he uses these two ideas. He says, do you have sympathy and a tender heart? Sympathy is that idea of I'm feeling with you. And a tender heart is a feeling for you, according to one commentator. As a believer, is your heart stirred for the plight and experience of others? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great pastor and theologian writing from a Nazi prison camp, wrote this. He said, we must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or or omit to do and more in light of what they suffer. The truth of the matter is, for most of us, our lives have a tendency to be so busy, we're so distracted, we have so much around us to call our attention and our affections away to other things. We're busy, we've got things going on within our family, we've got constant entertainment, we've got podcasts, and we've got movies, and we've got Netflix, and we've got all kinds of things that can play on our time. And all of those things can distract us from the people that God has placed directly within our life for whom we are intended to interact. And to paraphrase Bonhoeffer, who later wrote about this idea in another book about community, sometimes we become so obsessed with the idea of community and an idealized version of community that we miss the people around us who are suffering, we miss the people around us who are struggling, the people around us whom God has explicitly placed in our life for a particular reason, with whom He intends us to have community where community just becomes this idealized notion that is never actually experienced in our life. Well, how do you experience it? You actually have to know people. You actually have to interact with them. You have to have this brotherly love for them, a sympathy and a tender heart. But he doesn't just stop there. Then he goes on to say, a humble mind. Now, that language doesn't mean a whole lot to us, primarily because when we talk about humility, we think about it in a very positive sense naturally. That's the air we breathe. But but think about how this would have struck a Greco-Roman culture. Because in this particular culture, humility was not considered a virtue. It was considered weakness. To be humble meant that you had nothing to brag about. And therefore, you were not worthy of showing any pride. Pride itself was considered a virtue. And if you've grown up in or around the church, that's likely your perspective of humility as well. But when you look at society at large, what you realize is we've gone full circle with this over the last 2,000 years. We're in the middle of a time right now where the world around us has declared the month of June to be Pride Month. It's devoted to the idea that a person's self-identification is the ultimate expression of their worth and value. It's completely humanistic in its ideology. And we likewise, all of us likewise, might be tempted to find our identity in the prideful pursuits of our own life. Our accomplishments and our success and our comfort or the admiration of others, but But while that philosophy of pride on its face promises happiness and satisfaction and community, the best it can offer is a fragile identity, an identity that is immediately threatened and undercut. If anyone denies or rejects or questions, it's validity. And Peter here is saying, in Christ, you've been offered something infinitely greater. You've been given an identity that is so secure and so stable and so unchanging and so valuable that it actually grants you the freedom to be humble. That you don't have to find your worth in your own self identification, as our current modern culture would have us believe. That you don't have to find your worth in what it is that you've accomplished and what you've done. That you now have the freedom To be denied or rejected or questioned by the world around you and still be utterly satisfied in the acceptance granted to you by the Father. So understand what Peter is saying here. He's not saying that you ought to have a low opinion of yourself, but what he says is that you ought to count others more significant than yourselves, in the words of Paul in Philippians. Or as C.S. Lewis quipped, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So here's the operative question for us, because if you're sitting here and you're thinking through all these ideas, your tendency might be to go, okay, good. I've gotta have brotherly love and I've gotta have sympathy and I've gotta have affection for others and I've gotta have humility and I've gotta be having all of these different things, but how do I actually get it? Because if we're honest and we're doing our own self-assessment, what we might say is, I don't have any of those in any fashion. Or maybe I have them to some extent, but I'm severely lacking. And now you're just telling me that this is the way that I need to feel. How do you do that? Well, have you tried not feeling selfish? It's not a very promising solution. How do we get these feelings, these emotions, these internal, this internal sentiment, for lack of a better word, this posture of the heart? Jump down to verse 15. He's going to give us the answer here. He says, but in your hearts... Honor honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Well, how does the recognition of Christ as Lord reorient our internal life? How does it shape our emotions and drive our affections? See, when I have a high view of other people, when when other people's opinions or validation or acceptance is paramount in my life, I will inevitably be driven by fear. Let me just confess to you right now that this is my natural operating state, and I'm talking here about myself. Can we be honest? I know it's church, but... This is my natural state is to live in fear of man. I want people's approval, I want their acceptance, I want them to think well of me, I want them to have a good opinion of me. And what I can tell you, both personally, experientially, and from this text is inevitably it drives you to live a life out of fear. Because I'm going to be driven to seek their approval, I'll be afraid to be vulnerable or to be weak because I'll risk then rejection or criticism. I'll be afraid to show sympathy or compassion because my care might be spurned or even taken advantage of. So it's just easier to not care about other people and project an image. But a recognition that Jesus Christ is Lord changes everything, everything. Because when I honor Christ the Lord as holy, when I see him as God, which is what Peter is ultimately saying here, when I see him as set apart, then I hallow him. And that's actually literally what Peter is saying here. He's saying if you want to understand how to do this, you have to honor Christ in your hearts. You have to hallow him. You need to enshrine him in your heart, as one commentator wrote it. It reorders, then, every other relationship into its proper place. So to the extent that you have fear of man issues, to the extent that you are constantly looking for the approval of others, there is no way in which you can lower the approval of others and importance in your mind unless you have elevated something else into its place. And what Peter is saying is you need to honor Christ the Lord as holy, as set apart, as uniquely different, as sitting above everything else. And when you do that, every other relationship and every other piece of your life naturally reorients underneath it. That recognition assures me of my sonship. It assures me of my beloved position. It assures me of my acceptance. And it reminds me then of my kinship in Christ with other believers so that I can have this heart of tender compassion towards them and a brotherly love. And Peter is saying that when we adapt this inward posture of the heart made possible by the empowering example of Jesus Christ, it will inevitably begin to work its way out into our lives. When the root of understanding who Jesus Christ is digs deep into your heart, the fruit of that will be this unity of mind, this brotherly love, this compassion, this tenderness towards others. And it's going to play out in other ways as well because look how he continues in verse 15. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now this verse has been used to advocate formal, apologetic-style defenses of Christianity, and certainly that is a proper use case for it. But it seems that what Peter has in mind here is really far more basic. He's speaking here to, to people who are not educated philosophers. He's speaking here, here to people who are not social elites, although certainly those people would have been included in this conversation. But remember that, at least in part, he's speaking to slaves. He's speaking to wives who, in this, case, in this culture, would have been, by and large, uneducated. He's speaking to people who are like you and me, who may be basic in our understanding of theology, who may not have any background in philosophy, but he's saying this, you ought to be ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within you, in other words, When a world looking on says, why is it that you live the particular way that you live? And how can you walk through what you're walking through and still believe what you believe? What's your answer to that question? Where does your hope actually find its root? That when you have hope in Christ, it inevitably stirs up curiosity in the minds of the world around us. But notice then that similarly in verse 9, Peter doesn't just tell us not to reciprocate when we are mistreated. He actually goes so far as to say that we should extend blessing towards those who curse us. Look what it says, verse nine, do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Now in this case, what does it actually mean to bless those who curse you? Well, we find a clue within the word that's translated bless in our Bibles. It's the Greek word eulogio, which is where we get our word eulogy. And typically when we think about a eulogy, we think about a funeral, we think about somebody standing up front and sharing nice stories and nice thoughts about the person who has passed. And that's exactly the idea that Peter is communicating here. He's saying that we ought to eulogize those people. We ought to publicly speak well of people who curse us. This takes us back to our opening story about Betsy. How do you say something nice about people who have nothing nice about them to be said. But understand that Peter here is not recommending that we have an irrational or dishonest view of the people around us or the circumstances we're experiencing, but what he's saying is that we ought to look for, we ought to look for opportunities to not take the pot shots that we might be tempted to take. What does it look like not to say the nasty thing that somebody deserves? What does it look like to actually speak well of somebody and how do we actually then do that? Well, notice what drives the response. He says, for to this you were called. In other words, this is not an optional piece of the Christian life for those who are super Christians. This is the basic essence of what it is to be a believer. This is something you individually, you and I as believers, we've been called to that we may obtain a blessing. Now, how does Peter describe the blessing that awaits the Christian who endures this suffering and responds with blessing in his life? He he cites Psalm 34. That's where that quote comes from, beginning in verse 10. And here's what he says. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, this is fascinating, fascinating because Peter here is actually quoting Psalm 34. You should go read that on your own time. Take the time to read Psalm 33 and 34 together. It's worth the read, particularly if you struggle with anxiety, if you're struggling with particular uh, issues in your own life right now that you're going, man, I'm suffering and, and in various ways, I need to read through this. This is, what, this is what, uh, one of the things that certainly God might use in your life, but notice what he says here. He's saying David here puts his finger on what everyone in the world is seeking. He's talking here about the basic desire of humanity in the opening of verse 10. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Now, who doesn't want those things? It's the most basic desire that people have from the the poorest person in the ghetto to the wealthiest person in the nicest mansion in the world, what they want at its core, what they desire, what they pursue our good days, and to love life. That's it, isn't it? That's what all of us want. It's what our music is about. It's what our pop songs are about. It's what advertising promises us. It's it's the air that we breathe. That everything is about loving life and seeing good days. But Peter does not mean it in the saccharine, vapid way that most people think about it. Remember, he's writing this and citing Psalm 34 as a promise to people who are in the midst of suffering. In other words, it must be possible in some way or another, outside of largely our experience most likely, it must be possible some way to love life and to see good days even in the midst of suffering. Well, how is that? And how do we find it? And how does all of this actually stir up a love for one another and an ability to bless those who curse us? Well, I think he gives us the answer in verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. God himself is aware of you. God has not forgotten you. God has not abandoned you. And the question for us is this, are we living, are we living our lives in the recognition that the eyes of the Lord are on you? I think when we think about that idea of the eyes of the Lord being on us, about God watching us, about God seeing what's going on, knowing what's in our hearts, I think sometimes we hear that as a threat. We hear it in the way that a young child hears about Santa Claus. Do you want blessings or cursings because you better watch your behavior? Right. Do you want gifts or do you want coal? And so when we hear about the idea that the eyes of the Lord are on us, it can strike up in us a fear, a a fear that is not right, not a correct fear of who God is, but a fear instead that is driven out of an insecurity, afraid that He's not actually good, afraid that He doesn't actually love us, afraid that He will abandon us, afraid that He will reject us. But brother and sister, the promise of Psalm 34 and the promise of 1 Peter 3 and there is no greater promise in Scripture, there is no greater hope in the middle of suffering and hardship and depression or worry is the realization that God has not forgotten you. That He is with you. And God communicates this all throughout Scripture. Read the Psalms, which is full of this promise. Or the text that came to mind for me this week, which was Isaiah chapter 49, beginning in verse 14, where the people of God are speaking to Israel, and God, through the prophet Isaiah, responds to him. And the children of Israel said, The Lord has abandoned me. The Lord has forgotten me. And God responds in verse 15, Can a woman forget her nursing child? Or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these forget, even if a nursing mother forgets her child, and how impossible is that? I will not forget you. And then in verse 16, he says, Look, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. God is saying to you today, brother, sister, suffering brother and sister, worried, brother and sister, anxious, brother and sister, fearful, brother and sister, downtrodden, brother and sister, I have not forgotten you. You are not alone. The eyes of the Lord are on you. He holds your tears in a bottle. He's with you in the middle of the night when you wake up, terrified. He's with you in the moment you get that phone call. He's with you in the waiting. As you hear the the test results come back. He is with you in the midst of it. His ears are open to your prayers. When the ceiling feels like brass and you wonder if the words are even getting past your mouth, let alone to the ears of God, He is guaranteeing you that through the precious blood of His Son, He hears and listens and loves and pursues. And as if all of that is not enough he says to the children of Israel what he says to you which is i have your name inscribed on my hands tattooed to my body as it were and god is saying i can't look at my hands without thinking about you and you might say well wait a minute though it says that that promises for the person who's righteous i didn't slip past my notice I'm not righteous. I'm in the middle of sin. I'm riddled with guilt. I can't get over the stuff that I'm doing. I, I can't get it right. I do nothing but screw up. And the question for you is, where does your righteousness actually lie? Is it in your ability to obey? Because if so, then yes, we're sunk. And we should all just go home and not waste our Sunday morning. But the promise of this text is the living hope that comes through Jesus Christ alone. That he lived the life that you could not live and he did it on your behalf. That he died the death that you deserved. That he was buried and that he rose again three days later to give you new life. His life. Perfect life. So that you do stand 100% complete, clean, and righteous in the eyes of the God. So rest assured, he hears you and he loves you and he has not forgotten you. Remember where your hope is found when you honor Christ the Lord as holy. When you remember, after maybe having forgotten for entirely too long or doubting in your heart for entirely too long, when you remember in that moment, oh yeah, Christ is God. He's actually God and he actually loves me and he actually did this for me. It's in that moment when your heart can be reassured of the guarantees that he's given you. So live life unified with brotherly love and affection, compassion and tenderness and sympathy and humility not because you can muster it because you can't but remembering who Jesus Christ is and that he does not forget you and that he has validated you and accepted you perfectly that there is nothing you will walk through that he will abandon you. Be encouraged today, brother and sister. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the assurances of your word. God, you know what we're walking through today. You know the feelings and the fears and the worries and the anxieties and the suffering that's going on in our hearts and our minds right now. And for the brother and the sister in this room who feel like they are walking through somebody that nobody else knows, and perhaps nobody else knows they're walking through it, would you remind them that you are right in it with them? That there is unity of mind, that you have sympathy and compassion toward them, that in Jesus Christ, brotherly love has been extended to them as a member of the family of God, God, would you help us to recognize you as being holy and set apart and different, not for the purpose of pushing you away, but of reordering our life, of seeing everything else fall in line properly underneath you. God, to the brother or sister who feels lost, who's wandering, who's suffering, who feels alone, would you cause them to see your hand and your presence in their life and would that then lead them into a vulnerability to see and to know other believers, to share what's going on, to entrust their hearts first to you and then to the people with which you've surrounded them. God, help us to be a church that models this sort of love, unity, and humility and help us to do it in a way that is driven by our understanding of family. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray, amen.